0: Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel. Here again, God's holy word. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We ask that your spirit would guide us into truth. Please deliver us from every distracting, uh, d- distracting thought, every, uh, everything that would uh, tear our attention away from your word. We pray that you would deliver us from er- every error. We ask you to guide us into truth by your spirit of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. They say that good things come to those who wait. And it's true because all the best things in life are made slowly, like a brisket that has been smoked for 10 hours, or a ham that has been cured for six months or more, or a fine wine or cheese that have been aged for years. You can microwave a Hot Pocket and eat it right now, uh, but you're probably going to regret it. And even at that, the stuff that goes into the hot pocket took a while to, uh, to, to be made. Great things develop gradually over a long period. It took Beethoven six years to write his Ninth Symphony. It took Michelangelo four years to paint the Sistine Chapel. The cathedral in Cologne, Germany, took 632 years to complete. Good things take lots of time. Calamities happen suddenly. Disaster strikes in an instant. Earthquakes, tornadoes, flash floods, lightning. You can't plan for them. They come without any warning whatsoever. Things can fall apart or burn down or get destroyed much more quickly than it takes to build good things up. So when Jesus teaches about the greatness of the kingdom of heaven, he uses examples of things that grow gradually things that spread slowly. He talks about fields and trees and leaven. When you sow seeds in the dirt, you don't see progress for many days. All the initial growth is hidden beneath the ground. Only after a long time of patiently waiting, do you start to see little buds pop up through the soil. If you want an oak tree in your yard for shade, you're not gonna get one this afternoon by planting an acorn this morning. You're gonna have to wait 20 or 30 years for a fully matured big tree. if you try to rush it, if you try to overwater it or over fertilize the tree, you're gonna rot the roots and you're gonna kill it. You cannot rush it. So God always works. This is how he works. He works in stages, he works over time, to accomplish his purposes. He could have created a fully matured world. He could have called it into existence in a microsecond. He could have instantly created everything that we see around us today. But instead, he built the cosmos a step at a time over six days. He matures humanity through stages of history and what he requires of us while he's working What he requires of us is patience and hope and diligence. But while we are waiting on God's work, we are apt to grow impatient. We're easily tempted to run ahead, to reach out, to grasp at what is not ours yet. It's that satanic impulse to not wait, to become restless, to cut corners, to exalt ourselves, to promote ourselves, to attempt to sinfully manipulate the world, to accomplish what we want to happen right now rather than waiting on God's purposes to work their way out. This happens over and over in the scriptures. Adam reached for the tree of knowledge of good and evil before it was time. He would have, had, he would have gotten access to that in time when he had grown and matured, but he didn't wait. Abraham didn't wait for the Lord to fulfill his promise to uh, give him a child through Sarah. No, he forces a quicker outcome with Hagar. Israel gets bored of waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai, and so they make a golden calf and worship it. The impulse to not wait on the Lord, the impulse to rashly, impatiently wait, uh, uh, impatiently make something happen right now, that impulse always leads to disaster. So this message of the necessity of patience, the duty to wait, is taught in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus tells a story of a man who sowed good grain in his field, but while he slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. What are tares? There's a weed that grows throughout the world, wherever wheat grows, in every climate that you find wheat, there's a weed called the bearded darnel or the poison darnel, or sometimes it's called false wheat. It grows up looking exactly like wheat until the head of grain appears. It's only at the end of the growth cycle that you can see the difference between the wheat and the tare and the, and the darnel. It's not until... You get close to the harvest, can you tell them apart? And if there are tares growing together with the wheat, their roots became, uh, they become intertwined so that you can't rip out the tares without damaging the wheat. Both have to be left to grow together until the harvest, and then at the harvest in ancient agriculture, the men would reap the wheat, uh, they'd bring it back, and then the women and children would have to carefully pick out the tares, because they can be poison. If you have too many, when you, when you grind it up and, and, and you mix them, if, if too many tares are mixed in the grain, it can be a problem, it can be toxic. So weed, weeds are part of farming, and, and you're gonna have to put up with some weeds here or there, so you're used to picking out tares. It's gonna be here, and, and you're gonna have to put up with it. But in this story, the farmer's enemy deliberately comes and plants tares in his newly sown field. That means that at the time of harvest, they're gonna have a whole field of wheat mixed with poison tares. And that's gonna require a great deal of effort to pull all of that apart. A lot of labor. Who would do such a thing? Who would plant weeds deliberately in in a field? You don't plant weeds. Well. Evidently, this is something that actually happened because it was punishable by Roman law. It's codified in Roman law. It's a punishable offense to plant uh, weeds in your neighbor's field. That would be a way to really mess with somebody that you you didn't like. In in this story, the grain sprouts and and it produces a crop, and that's when the farmer can tell that his his field is full of weeds. So the servants of the farmer come and say, we know that you sowed good seed, why is the land full of tares? And the farmer says, an enemy had to have done this. And the servants say, so do you want us to go rip out the tares and gather them up? And the master says, no, because if you do that, you're gonna rip out the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and then we can separate them. Then we can burn the tares and gather the wheat into the barn. So what does this parable mean? Well, we get a little bit of a a explanation from the Lord Jesus. Um, We uh, can pick up in verse 34 of chapter 13. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Remember from our study last time in Matthew's Gospel that parables were a coded way of teaching to deliberately bewilder those who were not listening in good faith. There were people listening to Jesus who were looking for something to bring an accusation against him for, and so uh, he would speak in this way that would deliberately confuse them, but parables were also a sign of judgment. Parables are are the sign that it times up. When, when the prophets come speaking in parables, you know that the day of the Lord is near. And then parables are also a way that Jesus speaks kingdom wisdom and he communicates kingdom principles. King Solomon spoke in parables. Parables are kingly wisdom and require some meditation and reflection. So verse 36, Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the, of the field. At the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus left the house where he had been teaching. He went out into public. He got into a boat a little ways off the shore, and he taught the congregation gathered along the shoreline. It was kind of a natural amphitheater where he could stand out in the boat and he could teach those on the shoreline. He could also be <coughs> elevated a little bit in the prow of the boat, and he could teach, teach them. Um, and that's where he gave them the parable of the sower and the soils. He gives them the parable of the wheat and the tares. And later that day, he goes back into the house where he was staying. And that's when the disciples ask him, can you explain that parable of the wheat and the tares a little more fully? They know that there's more to it than they were getting. And so they wanna make sure that they understood it. And so Jesus explains it, verse 37. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field, is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. Then the son of man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus clarifies that the field is the world. This is not a parable of what happens to the church or in the church. The field is not the church, the field is the world. There's some bad interpretations of this parable that assume that there are always gonna be tares in the church and that prevents the church from having any kind of real victory in the world. It prevents the church from being um, uh, uh, successful in her mission to preach the gospel to, to all the nations. And, and that, that's assuming that the tares are sown in the church. But understand the field isn't the church. I even heard one interpretation that said, well, this is why you can't exercise church discipline because there are always gonna be tares in the church and you just wait until the Lord sorts it out at the end. Well, again, that's, that's a bad understanding The field is not the church, the field is the world. We're talking about the world, and specifically the world that existed during Jesus's ministry. We're talking about the old world. We're talking about the pre-resurrection, the pre-ascension world, the old world of the old covenant that is under judgment when Jesus comes. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom sown into the world by Jesus himself. The bad seeds are the sons of the wicked one. The tares are the men sown into the world by the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. What age? What what age are we talking about there? The end of planet Earth? uh, No, the end of that age. That age of rebellion and idolatry. The end of the age of the temple. The end of the sacrificial system. The end of Israel's national relevance. That age is coming to an end. So it's just a rule of thumb. Whenever you see Jesus or the other apostles write about the last days, they aren't talking about 1984. They're not talking about the year 2020 or 2023. They're primarily talking about the last days of Israel, the last days of the old heavens and the old earth. It's that age that's coming to an end when the resurrection and the ascension and the judgment on the old world, the judgment on the temple gives birth to a new creation. There's a new heavens and a new earth and you are a new creation. Um, So it's that old age that's coming to an end and it's very close to them. That that age is coming to a close within that generation. In John's Gospel, in uh, chapter 12, Jesus talks about his coming crucifixion and he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's why there's there's an urgency and an imminence to Jesus' message of judgment. It's not because he's talking about something that's thousands of years away from his perspective. He's He's not trying to get everybody stirred up about something that's going to happen millennia into the future, but because the fulfillment of these things is near. This parable is primarily about what was happening to Israel in that generation. Now, It is instructive for us and we can draw a lot of comfort and and help from these things. It's helpful for us and it helps us to know how to live in our day because we're living in a wicked age. We're living in a time where uh, judgment is imminent. But it's instructive for us, it's instructive for us not because it was irrelevant to the apostles, because it was irrelevant to that generation. It's relevant to us because it was very near and it was very real to them. It it makes it more relevant to us when we see how Jesus delivered on all of his promises. When he said, I'm coming quickly, he was coming quickly and he fought from heaven against that generation, against that land, against that temple. We see how Jesus delivered on his promises and how he dealt with that generation. So the field is the world, sown with good seed and bad seed, wheat and tares. And that's the world Jesus finds when he comes now for the harvest. Let's get a little bit more um, historical perspective on this time when Jesus comes and think back to the end of the Old Testament. Think back 400 years before the coming of Jesus The remnant of Israel had returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity. You have Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. You have that generation. But once they return to the land, they build the city back up, they build the temple back up. It doesn't look like the previous temple. Um, But they don't have any rest in the land. They're always being threatened on every side. And after Malachi, there's no new revelation. There are no prophets, there's no fresh word from God that entire time. That whole long stretch of time before the coming of John the Baptist, before the coming of Jesus, those centuries were a time that required waiting and patience and hope that Yahweh would fulfill his promises to send Messiah. The Lord had his people, he had the good seed in the world, And the opening of the Gospels were introduced to them. We have faithful Zechariah and Elizabeth. We have Simeon and Anna. We have Joseph and Mary. We have John the Baptist. There are many who faithfully hear and trust and follow Jesus when he comes because they were waiting on him. They were waiting on the Lord and they were delighted to see him come. And there's Peter and James and John and the other disciples who receive him and trust in him. There is good seed planted in the world. The sons of the kingdom are planted, but... During that whole long time of that growing season, the enemy has also planted weeds that have been growing alongside the wheat this whole time. So, who are the tares? Well, it's the usual suspects. It's the people we keep hearing about. It's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Hellenists, the Zealots. The Pharisees who start off well—they're the religious conservatives—but over time, they added their traditions to a point that they, the traditions, became more important to them than obeying God's word and. The traditions became loopholes for them to actually disobey God's word and still feel good about themselves. The Sadducees denied important doctrines like the resurrection. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of their day. They didn't believe anything. The Hellenists wanted to be just like the Greeks. They wanted to imitate the idolaters and they wanted to incorporate Greek philosophy into their religion. The Zealots were radical political revolutionaries who were consumed by their hatred of Rome and they were looking to violently overthrow Roman rule in Judea. Now of all these groups, none of them liked Jesus. They were all offended by Jesus at various times because they were hard-hearted and they wouldn't believe. And all these tares are growing up in the world right alongside the good wheat. And whenever this happens, whenever... There are evil people abounding and thriving in their rebellion, corrupting and poisoning everything, just making everything bad. The righteous start looking around and asking the Lord, are you going to do something about this? The righteous start asking, why, Lord, have you allowed the wicked to not just live, but to prosper? Because it looks like weeds are growing everywhere. The weeds have taken over the wheat field. And Lord, it looks like you aren't doing anything about this. And the servants in the parable ask, so, Lord, do you want us to take care of this for you? Just let us go out there in the field and we'll take care of those weeds for you. I mean, we'll rip them right out. We'll cut them down and we'll throw them in the fire right now and we'll laugh when we're doing it. We'll enjoy it. Just say the word. Just give the green light. And the master says, no, 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 no. If you do that, you're gonna destroy the wheat and you're gonna hurt the good plants as well. We can really sympathize with these servants and their desire to do something. I mean, if if God isn't going to do something about these disgusting, idolatrous, perverted weeds, then we've got to take matters into our own hands. You get tired of waiting around. The tares are rude and offensive. They're embarrassing. They're poisonous. They're outrageous. Let's just go deal with them violently. Let's show them what's up. And this is the temptation that even the most faithful men had in the first century. The epistle of James was written to these guys to remind them that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The impulse to be overcome by your frustration, to be consumed by your impatience might lead you to join some radical revolutionary movement to take out the tares. But that would inevitably lead you to injuring God's people in the process. Radicals always, always, always do more harm than good. They may begin with good intentions. They may be sincere. They think they're doing the Lord's work. But hot-headed revolutionaries always tear things down. That's their purpose. That's what they're after. They're not after building things up. They want to tear things down. Impatience is destructive. And if we're honest with ourselves, you and I are tempted in the same direction we wonder, what is God thinking? What is he doing? Why doesn't he smash the corrupt people in our government? Why doesn't he obliterate the pedophiles and the abortionists and those who are pushing the homo agenda and the trans agenda on kids? Why doesn't he crush the heads of Marxists and leftists and everybody who's bringing chaos and mayhem to our cities and communities and just spoiling everything everywhere they go? And while we ask that question, we think, well, maybe it's up to us. Maybe we need to do something performative and provocative, maybe even violent. I mean, hey, look at all that the barbarians are doing. I mean, they get on the news. Maybe we should go try our hand at that. Let's imitate them. But the directive to the faithful in evil days, the directive to God's people who live in evil times over and over and over and over the directive is wait. That's what, it wait, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What does faithfulness look like in evil days? Well, we've got all kinds of examples in scripture. Faithfulness is resisting evil. It, it takes a lot of courage to obey God when everybody else around you is, is not. Um, obeying God over man, it's, It's it's guarding and defending holy and innocent people and things. And so we've got all kinds of examples of how to do this. Resist the advances of Potiphar's wife. Even it means you go to jail. You resist the the harlot. Uh, Don't eat the meat at the king's table like Daniel. And if they tell you not to pray, you know what? I'm going to pray even harder like Daniel did. Uh, if uh, the the Pharaoh tells you to kill the baby boys and throw them in the Nile, you don't. You don't do that. Even if it means your life, you resist. Uh, it means defending uh, the innocent, as Moses defends uh, the Hebrew slave who is being uh, beaten by the the Pharaoh, the, the the Egyptian taskmaster. These are the examples that we have of faithful protection and resisting evil. Um, but but. But understand, it's not um, violent in a way that we're tempted to do. And and, uh, that's what these servants want to do. Let's go out there, Lord, and let's rip out those tares. All you got to do is say the word. And the master in the parable says, no, no, we're not going to do that. Wait, wait until the harvest. And then what Jesus describes here is exactly what happened to that generation within the next 40 years. The son of man sent out his angels and they harvested the wicked and they cast them into the furnace of fire. Uh, The book of Revelation unpacks, the the book of Revelation is the explication of everything that Jesus said here because that's what the the angels open the seals of the book of judgment. Uh, They trumpet out the contents, they pour out the bowls of, of God's judgment and then just as Jesus says here, after the judgment, Of the old world, the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The church is unleashed on the world and grows more and more, and Jerusalem is finished. The temple is gone. There's nothing there and nothing left to go back to. But still, you and I, in the midst of all this, we ask, why does it take so long? Why does God let the tares grow for so many years? Why does he wait to destroy them? Well, one reason God allows the wicked to prosper is that this is the way that he exposes their evil. He does this for all the world to see. And and he does this for his people to see this is what rebellion really looks like. This this is what is in the heart of man. When you drop all the pretense, you drop all the superficial niceties, this is what idolatry looks like. Do, Do you wanna see what I saved you from? Do you want to see what you could have been like if I didn't save you? That over there, that's what's in your heart. That is what ingratitude looks like if it is unbridled. This this is rebellion. This is idolatry. Watch it. Look at it. Listen to it. You see what sin looks like. Evil is exposed so that the righteous recognize evil and that they're humbled and they repent of it and they avoid it in themselves and, and also so that when judgment comes because evil has been allowed to run all the way to the end of its leash, when judgment comes, nobody can defend the evildoers. When judgment comes, everybody can look back in history at the judgment and no one with an ounce of wisdom is going to defend the wicked just as no one can defend Israel here. How can you defend them? How can you defend their unbelief? God sent them his prophets. He says, daily, I raise my prophets up and I sent them to you. I sent you my prophets. He sent them John the Baptist. He sent them his own son. He sent them the apostles and his disciples. He sent them out to them. He gave them time. He gave them so much time. Who can defend their rebellion? Who can defend their unbelief? Who will rise to their defense? Nobody. Nobody, what, what more could he have done than what he did? Nothing, and so by allowing them to uh, run out to the end of their leash, he allows them to expose the full, the, the full fruition of wickedness and idolatry and ingratitude. God allows monsters and demons time to expose themselves. They, they all overplay their hand before he acts in judgment. He lets them go and he also waits he waits until it looks like maybe he's forgotten his promises. Maybe he's not going to do anything. Maybe he's not going to come to deliver us. And why does he do this? Well, to teach us patience and to teach us to trust and to have this steadfast faith in his word over what we can see and hear. And then when he brings his deliverance, when he brings his salvation to pass, it comes in a way that nobody can deny that he has done it. Things get so bad that the only way out of it is a miraculous deliverance. And then you know, oh yeah, he's the one who sent that. He accomplished this salvation. Everybody knows Yahweh did it because nobody else could have done this. Nobody, nothing else. There's no other explanation. We have the We have the Red Sea on one side of us. We have Pharaoh's army thundering down on the other side of us. Uh, uh, How are we gonna get out of this one? What's gonna happen? Well, just watch. Just wait. Wait for God to deliver you. Uh, Why, why does he wait to the last second before delivering us? Why didn't he just let us sneak around the north side of the sea in the middle of the night? For this very reason. It's to expose the full wickedness of the idolaters. I mean, you see, even after everything that Pharaoh went through, he lost his firstborn son and still his heart is so hard that he's got to come and pursue God's people this way. God exposes the wickedness of the idolaters and he shows his strength on behalf of his people. In fact, his deliverance of his people and his judgment on the wicked is almost always the very same act. In one act, God both judges the wicked, and delivers his people. The waters that miraculously part for the rescue of his people close back over on on Pharaoh. So in between this parable and its explanation, Jesus gives two other short parables that are on this same topic. Verse 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, botanically speaking, a mustard seed is not the smallest seed on the planet. But that's not what Jesus is saying. A mustard seed is a common example of something tiny, as we, we would say, as small as a grain of rice. I mean, it's just a comparison. And the tree that the mustard seed produces is not the biggest tree in the world. It's not like the cedars of Lebanon. It's more like a really big shrub that, that grows to about eight or 10 feet, but stretches its branches way out in every direction. So listen closely what Jesus is saying here. The, the mustard seed is a tiny seed, an herb, that amazingly grows into a tree. In your herb garden, you may have a little basil plant, a little parsley, a little cilantro, but you don't don't rest in the shade of any of these plants, right? I mean, they don't give a lot of shade. But if you plant a mustard seed, you're gonna have something more like a tree. Israel is a tiny seed planted in the field of the world. And when it grows up, it doesn't become a mighty oak. It, It doesn't become a cedar. It's not like, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in his dream in Daniel 4 where uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is like a tree that reaches into the heavens. That's not not Israel. Israel at her peak becomes something like a big bush and everyone is tempted to despise it. Even Israel herself in her self-image, she thinks she's supposed to be a cedar. She thinks she's supposed to be a tree reaching into the heavens. Israel covets the other nations. She adopts the ways of the mighty cedars. She wants to be like Babylon and Egypt and Greece and and Rome. She wants to be like the big trees, and yet the mustard tree is just what God designed her to be. And it's where the birds of the air find rest and refuge and shade. All the Gentiles were to come nest in her branches for food and healing and comfort but they don't because she starts acting just like them. She's not a refuge for them. She acts just like them. Her temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations and it ends up being a den of brigands, a den of revolutionaries. But instead of filling the role that God created for her, she envies the empire. She covets their power. She rejects the way of the cross. She rejects her her crucified Messiah. And that puts her on a collision course with Rome and it ends up in her ruin. This is a warning tale for us. And the same mustard seed image is suitable for the church as well as we learn from Israel's errors. The church does not have the same function in the world as the empire's. That's not her role in the world. That's not why God created her. She's a faithful mustard tree. She grows steadily, gradually, reaching out her branches for the rest and the shade and the healing of all the nations. That is her glory. We don't imitate the beastly nations. And Jesus tells one more parable, verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. It's often assumed that leaven is always a a metaphor for corruption or for sin, that leaven is always bad, that that it's always something bad, but that's not the case. Israel ate leavened bread at the feast of Pentecost. In the peace offering, you offer leavened bread there as well. Um, You do put away the leaven at Passover. You put away all your old bread starters. You put away all your sourdough starters at, at Passover, and you start over with new bread because you remember the way that God delivered his people from the bread of Egypt with all the old idolatrous affections, and you go out and you eat new bread with the Lord in the wilderness. Leaven is also an illustration of something that permeates and multiplies and grows slowly over time. So that's why Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, because they had this subtle, pervasive influence, um, that the, this influence that the Pharisees exerted over the people. But the gospel also works like leaven. And, and the disciples are like leaven, slowly multiplying, permeating the society. So what about this woman who's baking bread with three measures of meal? How much is three measures of of meal anyway, that's, that's more like a bushel or about two gallons of meal, two gallons of flour. How many, how many loaves of bread could you make with two gallons of flour? If my math is right, that's about 60 loaves of bread. And there's a pivotal moment in biblical history where a woman does just this. She does this very thing. She bakes bread with three measures of meal. Who is it? It's Sarah when the angels visit her and Abraham to promise them a son. Everybody in Jesus' audience knows this story. And so when Jesus tells a parable about a woman taking three measures of meal, everybody thinks, oh yeah, Sarah, Abraham. They think back to that time when God promised something to Abraham and Sarah and how God delivered on that promise. And beginning with that tiny family, God produced descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the shore, just like a little leaven works out into that whole bounty of bread. So from that tiny family, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, all the nations of the world are blessed. But we also remember, even in that, there's that sour note that even faithful Abraham and Sarah, they could not wait, even at the very beginning of that promise, which is going to take centuries to be fulfilled. At the very beginning, right out, of the, right out of the gate, they had to race ahead and try to make things happen in their own strength. All of this is packed into this parable, this reminder of this tiny family that influences the whole world. And one more thing, once the leaven is in the loaf, you can't get it out. You can pick out the tares and you can separate them from the wheat, but once the leaven is in the bread, it's done. I'll invite you later when you get the bread from the table to try to extract the leaven before you eat it. Try to get all that out before you, you can't do it. Once it's in there, it's it's done. Once the, uh, once the yeast is in the bread, it's it's over. Um, and, and that's with th- this parable. The whole batch, all 60 loaves are leavened. And that's the, the way the gospel is in the world now. The whole world is being leavened by the gospel. The leaven of the gospel is in the world now and it can't be taken out. Try as hard as you can, you can't get rid of it. It's in. It's in. It's done. It's over. The gospel is in the world. So these parables, all three of them, are all speaking to the same thing. Faithfulness requires patience. Trusting in God means hoping in him to complete his purposes. He doesn't tear out the weeds immediately. Got to wait until the harvest. He plants a tiny seed to grow into a tree and all the birds come and rest in its branches. A lump of dough is not leavened instantly, but it works in until all the bread is fluffy. God's kingdom grows slowly and deliberately and gradually and persistently, but not immediately and not overnight. If we're gonna be godly, if we're gonna be like God, if we're gonna seek to please him, If we're tuned into his spirit, then you and I must be patient, which means we're in it for the long haul. We are committed to the long game. None of our solutions and none of our tools are designed to work quickly. God brings you and me through periods of life where we must be long-suffering, slow to anger, resist the temptation to take control and act out of sinful anger or act out of frustration just because we're restless or bored or fidgety. And and in these seasons of, of waiting, we remember how God normally works. He often allows circumstances to appear so desperate that it looks like there is no possibility of victory. I mean, we're brought right up to the edge of disaster so that when deliverance comes, it is obvious that the Lord did it. And we know, and everyone around us sees, that we weren't saved because of our strategy. We weren't saved because of our strength or our money or our influence or our prowess. We weren't saved because of our intelligence. The only way this happened is because God did it. That's it. So in the midst of evil days, in the midst of times like these, we don't trust in our senses more than God's word. We trust God's promises more than what we see. It looks like God's gonna put up with the terrors forever, but he won't. There's gonna be a harvest. It looks like the little mustard tree of the kingdom is embarrassingly small compared to the empires of the world. But that's not right. This mustard tree is the most important tree in the world. It looks like corruption is working its way like leaven through everything, but we know that's not true. It's the gospel that's the true leaven that's working its way through, and you can't get it out. You can't remove it. Remember all of this. Every time, every time you see the parade of insane people with weed-whacker haircuts, cross-dressing, and screaming, and raging, remind yourself that the leaven is in the loaf. Remind yourself that God's kingdom comes gradually, unnoticeably, in a way that nobody can tell it. Uh, And then even when it's revealed, it doesn't look like we expected it to. Remember that the tares are headed for the fire. Remember that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember that getting out of this situation that we're in is gonna require generations of faithful living of prioritizing the worship of the triune God over everything else. Generations of getting married and having babies and training those babies to love the Lord and to obey Him in all things. Generations of God's people doing good, hard, honest work in the world and doing that work better than anybody else. That may not be an exciting plan. That may not be an explosive plan or an overnight plan that may not make your socks go up and down. That may not get you on the edge of your seat. That agenda may sometimes feel like you aren't doing anything, but that's the plan. That's it. That's the only plan that God has promised to bless because that's the way he works. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to all of us. We thank you for your word. Please continue to strengthen us with your word and give us your spirit to pacify us, to calm us, to rest in you and in your work in the world.